Bienvenidos. This is a podcast that explores Latinx media and culture in its many forms. I am Dr. Rojo Robles. And I am Dr. Rebecca Elsalois. And we are Latinx and Latin American Studies professors at Baruch College in New York City. In this podcast, we will analyze Latinx film, television, literature, art, and cultures. We will consider how these works are perceived, analyze them, and investigate the real-world reflections and implication of that work on Latinx cultures in the U.S. and beyond. Welcome to Latinx Visions. In this episode, we will be discussing the 2012 film Mosquita y Mari, written and directed by Aurora Guerrero. Apart from unpacking the movie and its themes, we will look at how founding Chicana feminism can offer a frame to critically engage with it. As part of that discussion, we'll be taking a look at current Latinx debates that are connected to the show. I saw Mosquiti Mari for the first time after a recommendation from a student. I also incorporated the film last semester in my course, Latinx Screams, of course, on Latinx uh, media. I feel my approach to the films comes from my interaction with students, so we will also incorporate their voices by reproducing and quoting some of their public reflections about Guerrero's movie. Honestly, I love that. Like, I hadn't heard of the film until you mentioned it to me, but I watched it shortly after and really fell in love with the subtle ways in which it told this story. I feel like it's, it's a very subtle movie in that sense. So I'm actually going to show it in my Latinas course this semester. So we'll see how it compares to the takeaways you had from your own students. And finally, in this episode, we'll wrap up with a few recommendations of other Latinx films that highlight female characters. Yeah, so let's get started. So we were looking at a post from the Florida International University student media page. It's called The Panther Now. And the author and a staff writer, Gabriela Enamorado, shared her experiences and understandings of why it's difficult to be queer in the Latinx community. She writes, being queer and Latinx is hard. As a queer Guatemalan American girl, I often write about LGBT plus issues. When I was growing up in a Latinx household, I never heard anyone talk about LGBT plus issues and how they affect our community. I hope to be a voice to any queer Latinx kid out there looking for someone to understand them. You know, queer visibility in Latinx communities is something that I've had students bring up in the past during our class discussions, and I've heard this same sentiment echoed by them. It's, and that's a big reason why queer representation is so crucial. You know, we talked about one day at a time in our last episode, but that's just one example and one response to coming out. Mosquita Imari provides us with another perspective on this, and not even necessarily coming out, but, you know, just even uh, recognizing one's sexuality. It works much more with visuals in this film than with words, but the sentiment is still there. And Amorado shared the following insight about homophobia and queerphobia in the Latinx community. And I quote, The main reason so many Latinx people can be homophobic is because of religious reasons. The Catholic Church has a strong grasp across Latin America and my family. More than two-thirds of Hispanic people identify as Catholic. I often told that gay people were seen as sinners. Mm -hmm. And according to the Human Rights Campaign, many religious gay and lesbian Latinx are out in English, but not in their Spanish-speaking church. 
This suggests that while being out and proud is powerful and important, there are individuals who chose to only be partially out. Yeah. Some queer Latinx folks step away from religion while others choose to embrace certain elements while dismissing others, moving their focus to their spiritual elements and away from the conservative teachings of the church. In another film I teach in my Latinx film and media class, Raising Victor Vargas, a group of teenage siblings are marked by Catholic morals and patriarchal structures imposed by their Dominican grandmother and upbringing. The film proposes that the Catholic doctrine is highly patriarchal. It censors sexuality in general, but also influences the way young people are perceived and the divide that happens when there is permissiveness for males and repression for femmes. I, yeah, I haven't seen that film, so I'm, I'm definitely going to check that one out next. I think that that might be something we can look at when we do a season on the LGBTQ <laughs> Latinx specifically, right? In terms of machismo, first I want to talk about what machismo is and then bring in Enamorado's post. You know, so machismo is an attitude or a way of behaving that perpetuates traditional ideas about men being very strong and aggressive and requires that men suppress any signs of femininity. But it also impacts the perceptions of women within the community, you know, at least in terms of their roles relative to that of men. That and is one of the main issues of raising Victor Vargas, precisely. Yeah. Uh, well, fits in, <laughs> fits in perfectly then. Yeah. <laughs> and Amorado also spoke about machismo in her post, stating, being a Latina also meant living in a machista society meant being a proper lady in my house. Women should marry men and cater to them. We shouldn't be vulgar. We should know how to cook and clean and have plenty of babies. Being queer in any shape or form was not in the plan. Cherry Moraga and Gloria Anzaldúa, both queer Chicanas, speak to machismo in their writings, calling it out as oppression women experience because of a culturally developed mentality of male superiority. Anzaldúa, in Borderlands La Frontera, for instance, talks about intersecting oppressions in the U.S. On the one side, there is ethnic or cultural and linguistic discrimination, and on the other side, oppression against women and queer folk. Uh, but we'll dig into that a little bit later in more detail. So let's talk about the film in a specific, its narrative, yeah? Yeah. And I'm gonna, and this is something that we're gonna be doing today is including, as I, as I mentioned before, including the words of some uh, of my students from last semester, right? So using the words of student, uh, Devin Morales, she says, Mosquita y Mari is a depiction of teen romance presented against a backdrop of socioeconomic, racial, and gender conflict. Main characters, Mari and Yolanda, navigate pressure from their parents and peers while trying to make sense of the relationship developing between them. This relationship is presented through a series of unspoken moments that are central to the queer adolescent experience as those who do not yet have a grasp on their sexual identity often struggle to articulate their intense feelings or emotions. Many scenes teetered on the edge of affection, leaving the viewer to question the connection that is emerging between the two. The film reminds us that there is often no blueprint for young queer adolescents as seemingly tame moments shared between friends carry an almost burdensome weight of emotion and magnetism. 
experiencing tumultuous and intense friendship as queer teens is a rite of passage and I believe this film does a brilliant job at capturing that phenomenon. Those are great words from your student there. You know, I mean, it, it, it goes beyond just sharing the plot, right? <laughs> She's really digging into to some of the... the. It's almost a review of the film. <laughs> it, it, it's it like is. a flash review of the film. <laughs> right, but it's definitely something that can pull in audiences. I think I think mm -hmm. she she wrote it in uh in a way that definitely makes people want to watch. So I want to talk a little bit about Aurora Guerrero as a queer filmmaker, right? She is a queer identified Chicana writer director from California. Described as an activist first and filmmaker second, Guerrero focuses on collaborative work in her communities, creating art forms that offer opportunities for dialogue and education. So in an NBC interview with Damien Trujillo from the show Comunidad del Valle, Guerrero explains that the film is semi-autobiographical. It depicts a friendship that turns into love. Quote, something that was living in the shadows for a long time. She considers the making of this film project as very liberating. And at the same time, she sees it as a portrait of an innocent, real love that anybody can identify with. She says, I don't think that the love of two people from the same gender is unnatural or alien. I hope people can be surprised about feeling identification with these two girls. I love that. Guerrero highlights that she wanted to center the lives of two very young 15-year-old Chicanas with intersecting identities. They are multicultural and bilingual. When making the film, she was concerned about the lack of, or a minimal amount of, language about sex and sexuality, particularly in the Chicano and the larger Latinx community. That's why she focused on the unspoken and the gazes. And that's what I was saying earlier, right? It's, it's less about the words shared between these two young women and more about the, the looks that they have and, and sort of you can feel the their... body language. There's a, lo there's a lot of body language in the film that is captured by the camera. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's also about how opposite personalities find commonalities and ways of being together. Right? They're not exactly the same. These two girls don't have the same experience, but they can come together and find these things to identify with. Guerrero mentions that she wanted to showcase the pressures of growing up in a working class migrant environment and considers the film a tool to help the community start talking about sexuality and gender. She believes that there is a desire to talk about these topics, but many times people don't know how, right? And, and I think this film intends to break that silence. One of the things I think we should talk about is this, this mise-en-scene, right? Now, first, let's explain what that is for anybody who's not familiar with the term. Uh, mise-en-scene is the arrangement of scenery and stage properties in a play. It's a French phrase meaning setting the stage. But when we're talking about film analysis, the term mise-en-scene refers to everything in front of the camera. That includes the set design, lighting, and actors. Mise-en-scene in film is the overall effect of how everything comes together for an audience. So again, it includes things like sets, costumes, props, lighting, actor blocking, and shot composition. I'm not a, you know, a film expert here in terms of making it, but I know it when I see it. Obviously, art is subjective, but I would suggest that the mise-en-scene choices are what can elevate a film to new levels. 
a caring mise-en-scene translates as high production value for the audience. And I think that's absolutely what we see in Mosquite y Mari. Yeah. In terms of how Guerrero approaches the mise-en-scene, it is important to know how she's interested in realism and authenticity. That's why she shot the film on location in Huntington Park in Los Angeles, avoiding alterations to the environment of this Chicanx neighborhood. Mm -hmm. uh, she decided to use the camera as a tool that could convey intimacy and focus on gestures and body reactions. Yeah, I, I really like the way she shots the, the hands of the protagonist. Yeah, there's a lot of shots about the hands and, and demonstrate yeah, this interest in their uh, interior life through the body. And, and I love what you're saying about not changing the neighborhood and how that looked and how it was right so many times we see this happen in new york people mm -hmm. say oh we're filming this it's supposed to take place in x neighborhood but you can tell just by looking at the buildings and the shop fronts and so on if they actually filmed it in in that neighborhood and and it loses a sense of realness when they don't and so i i think that's another thing that really helped this film Yeah, student Daphne Torres analyzes as follows. Director Aurora Guerrero focuses quite a lot on emotional attachment and physical touch in the film. At first, when Yolanda and Mari are starting to get to know each other, the touching is simply playful and teasing. As an example, Daphne brought one scene in which, on the bleachers during gym class, Mari playfully tackles Yolanda by climbing on top of her. Yeah, she says, one of Yolanda's friends seems to notice but doesn't think much of it. I also didn't really think that this meant anything because it just reminded me of two friends play fighting. Guerrero most likely directed these scenes with the intention of subtly making the audience believe that there will eventually be something more between the girls than just friendship. But I, I just want to interrupt for a second. Like, I love that because... You can see it as more, but you don't have to at that moment, right? It's not so overt and in your face that it's it's just one of those another subtlety, you know, yeah. I think. It foregrounds, but it's not in your face, right? Exactly. Continuing with uh, Daphne, she says, throughout the rest of the film, we see a lot of scenes in which the two girls sit closer together doing math homework. Yolanda Mari resting their heads against each other's shoulders climbing onto a bicycle together, and even walking side by side listening to music. These are innocent touches, yet we can see that a deeper emotional connection is being formed. Mm -hmm. Mari is sometimes a bit aggressive with others, but with Yolanda, she's more gentle. Yeah. I like that Torres put a lot of attention to a climatic scene in which, and I quote, both of them were lying on the couch and Yolanda reached out to stroke Mary's stomach. Moments before when Yolanda was asleep, Mary pressed her lips to hers, but that's as far as it went. Torres says that she found the scene to be very endearing and just cute in an innocent way. Yeah. What Daphne described is a misunderstanding tendency of using tight close-ups to tell the story of their union and attachment while also symbolizing the cultural constraint and economic tightness. And doing it without the script, you know, without the, the verbal script, mm -hmm. right? It's all in, as you said, the body language, the, the close camera cuts and angles and so on. I mean, you know that. You feel it. You feel the the sort of openness that they have with each other, but simultaneously the constraints of their culture, all without anyone having to say a single word. 
I think the props also come in handy here, though, right? In terms of storytelling, props are crucial, and and even more so in in visual storytelling, like film. They can tell us more about the characters or even motivate the characters. Not only do they help identify a particular time, place, and cultural setting, they can really add to the story being told. Props give audiences clues about the characters, the scene, or the situations that are encountered along the way. They can add authenticity to the story and help bring it to life. They aid in drawing audience members into the scene to create a sense of immersion. And in some cases, they're the first thing that people think about when they think about a particular film. So I wanted to talk about a few of the props that we see in Mosquite Mari. You know, what are some of the, the big ones that come to mind for you? I think that we need to talk about the head. We need to talk about the Walkman, the geometry book, the bicycle. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I definitely. And they all come to play in, in different ways. So, yeah, I appreciate the way student Tiana Ruiz brilliantly examined the props of the film, finding deep meaning in everyday objects. She wrote, the geometry book is the first thing that links Yolanda and Mari together. Mari doesn't have a textbook, thus she has to share it with Yolanda. However, Yolanda's textbooks can be seen as an interior of herself. When she has to open it, she's also simultaneously opening, opening herself up to Mari. Mari's bicycles is a representation of her rebellious spirit. Her personality what pulls her into different directions constantly. As we can see in the film, Mari rides a bike while Yolanda walks next to her to show the dichotomy of personalities. Mm -hmm. But also, the bicycle serves as an ability to escape the world around Mari. The CD player and headphones is what is tied to Mari's personality. She shares music with Yolanda in order to give her an extension of herself. For example, when Maria asks Yolanda to borrow her CD player, we see that Yolanda is given the task to take care of it, which can allude to taking care of Mari herself. Also, music becomes a form of endearment when Yolanda wins a CD at an arcade and gives it to Mary. This form of prop is perhaps one of the biggest indicators of their attraction. It is immediately followed by them dancing to the music. I think one thing to really note about this CD Discman Walkman thing is the headphones. It's one set of headphones that they have to share. So there's they're actually connected through this line if they're listening to it together. Yeah, the right? same happens with the geometry book and the bicycle. They're, these are objects that they need to share in order to be together mm -hmm. and enjoy the things that the other person enjoys and, and appreciate. It gives them each insight to the other one and, and we, we don't hear about it, but we understand it through the physical closeness of the two. Yeah, and then the exchange of these uh, uh, objects as well. There's a lot of uh, how that exchange of objects is also symbolizing the, the way they're like getting close to each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah. To that excellent commentary, I would like to add that the cowboy hat represents Yolanda, uh, for Yolanda a way of getting close to her parents and seeing them beyond the image they constructed as sacrifice workers. Mm -hmm. The hat implies their desires, their youth, the courtship, el cortejo between Yolanda's parents. And there's another important object that I want to highlight is the, the hair scissors. Yolanda also has the opportunity of thinking of her parents as individuals with dreams separated from their roles as providers and ship laborers. Yeah, I, I mean, 
you bring up the hat to me that scene that moment was really great because there was a hesitancy on the part of her mother to to like let yolanda into that part of her life but when they did when she did the three of them you know they had this moment that they were able to share as a family and so it really it was something that that pulled them together as well right that we have all these objects that bring mari and yolanda together but the hat is also about bringing uh yolanda's family close yeah they had also like in, in implies that uh, she has a curiosity about her parents as as human beings not only as parents yeah as people who have who have like uh dreams who who enjoy life who like to party who like, who enjoy music and that is important to her too and that she's that uh, she wants that from her parents and that some that their Yolanda's parents has closed down that part of them to her and that's painful yeah and when she sees their love for one another too i think it's something that she can she sort of embraces and says like well that's similar to what i have with mari you know whether she recognizes it as something more than than a love of friendship at that point you know is not necessarily clear but there is that that vulnerability that is uh between her parents that i think she feels with mari So we wanted to talk a little bit about Chicana feminism in general, but also very much in connection with this film. And so we're going to share some insights from two renowned queer Chicana feminists that we mentioned at the beginning of the episode, Cherry Moraga and Gloria Anzaldúa. But before we get into some of the quotes from their work and how they tie in with the film, let's talk a little bit about who these women were and what they wrote. Cherry Moraga was born September 25th, 1952 in Los Angeles, California. She's a Chicana writer, a feminist activist, a poet, essayist, and playwright. She writes about Chicana lesbianism and the intersections of gender, sexuality, and race, specifically in regards to cultural production by women of color. She co-edited The Bridge Called My Back, Writings by Radical Women of Color with Gloria Anzaldúa in 1981, and that's where we're getting our our quotes from exactly other titles that by moraga include loving in the war years lo que nunca pasó por sus labios the last generation prose and poetry heroes and saints and other plays waiting in the wings portrait of a queer motherhood and most recently native country of the heart a memoir and that was published in 2019 Gloria Anzaldúa was born in, in 1942 and died in 2004 yeah, in Santa Cruz, California. She's a scholar of Chicana cultural theory, feminist theory, and queer theory. Her best-known book is Borderlands La Frontera, The New Mestiza. She's known for developing theories about the marginal, the in-between, and mixed cultures that develop along borders. Her writings cover a wide range of subjects, including spirituality, language and linguistic terrorism, health and the body, border culture, sexuality and feminism. Yeah, so a lot of overlap between these two here. <laughs> and they were collaborators. Yeah, right. They were like in, in constant communication through that book, This Bridge Call My Back, but in other projects as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even before knowing that they collaborated on this particular volume, it would not have surprised me to to understand that they would work together on, on many projects simply because of the overlaps in their in their research and their studies and in their what they wanted to write about. So we're gonna talk a little bit about theory of the flesh. 
Cherry Moraga, in the mentioned anthology This Bridge Call My Back, combines personal essays, criticism, interviews, poetry, and visual art. The collection explores, as co-editor Moraga writes, quote, the complex confluence of identities, race, class, gender, and sexuality, systemic to women of color, oppression, and liberation. In the anthology, Moraga also coined the constantly referenced philosophical phrase theory in the flesh. Moraga understood this theory as a conceptual frame, quote, where the physical realities of our lives, our skin color, the land or concrete we grew up on, our sexual longings, all fuse to create a politic born out of necessity. I mean, it seems like it seems like a mouthful, but it, it really breaks down pretty easily to, you know, these physical realities of our lives, right? Theory in the flesh happens when, quote, we do this bridging by naming ourselves and by telling the stories in our own words. Moraga explains that it implies the, quote, refusal of the easy explanation to the conditions we live in. Yeah, so Moraga was interested in, in, in owning yeah, her own story. And also she was interested in Chicanas and Latinas to own their own story and talk from that perspective. Which is why we're including her words today instead of just speaking our own. <laughs> <laughs> in the end credits of Mosquiti Mari, Aurora Guerrero writes that she's grateful for the honest writings of Moraga and Ansaldúa. Audience member are thus invited to think of the film from their feminist perspective. One exercise I did with my students was to read Moraga's essay La Guerra alongside the film. Yeah, and I'm looking forward to doing the same with my students in this upcoming semester. I think the two pieces go hand in hand quite nicely. So in the personal essay La Guerra, Moraga reflects on intersecting lines of oppression and privileges connected to race sexual preferences, labor politics, and access to education. Using these quotes as prompts today, we're going to do something similar, incorporating students' analysis and our own takes on Moraga's text and Guerrero's film. So the first quote that we're going to share with you comes from pretty much at the beginning of the essay, I think. Moraga says, I was educated and wore it with a keen sense of pride and satisfaction. My head propped up with the knowledge from my mother, that my life would be easier than hers. During the discussion we had last semester about Mosquiti Maria, student Kevin Elias argued that education is not the only shortcut to success. Okay. He believed that the film was promoting solely this idea and he was partially against it. He defended that there are other factors connected to social privilege that could uplift or put down a person. Within this debate, a Chinese student, Minxia, decided to engage with him in the blog. She responded that she understood his points, but she believed that education is a very effective way to succeed. She continued, We Chinese people have always believed that knowledge can change our destiny. People with higher levels of education tend to have higher social status. A poor person doesn't have many resources to help him succeed. Chitkanek's families in the film are eager to change their situation. They believe that education can give a person real skills, something others cannot take away. A higher degree would give them a relatively level playing field in the workplace. But to a certain extent, they can only hope that education will change their life. I had a similar experience as a Chinese person. Chinese people attach great importance to education. I think that's why China is developing so fast now. The family in the movie might have a similar idea. 
Yeah, that's I think that's a great interaction um, uh, between the students in, in your class, you know, just to to engage with the film this way that, you know, I, I was reading that post and I thought, wow, OK, yeah, maybe it's not the only way, but it is it is an effective way. And and I think the film kind of rides that line like it doesn't say that Mari you know, because her family isn't pushing her towards education, isn't going to be successful. But Yolanda's parents can see the value in that and are really pushing her in that direction. Yeah, I thought this interaction within the class was really stimulating because it interpolated the themes of the film to another country and to another migrant experience, mm. too. Yeah, it also spoke about about the universality of the film, even with its very localized She Connects narrative. Yeah, and that's to me, that's a good film, right? If it can do both of those. It doesn't erase the, the Chicanex story. It's very much a Chicanex story, but it it has those universal elements. You know, I love when a film can do it. So in no way are we suggesting that it's possible to erase the Latinx story being told here, but it's not impossible to connect with these thoughts and feelings in other ways. Yolanda's parents are immigrants. So, so many of our students who are children of immigrants can relate to this path, being the one that is most heavily promoted within their families. Okay, so here's, here's the next quote that we'll, we'll share from Moraga's essay. She says, And yet, the real story was that my family, too, had been poor, some still are, and farm workers. My mother can remember this in her blood as if it was yesterday. But this is something she would like to forget, and rightfully. For to her, on a basic economic level, being Chicana means being less. Cassandra Piñero, a New Yorker student that also saw many commonalities between a Chicanex and a Puerto Rican upbringing in the United States, decided to analyze one key scene regarding the socioeconomic debates of the film, right? Yolanda's parents, she said, and Maddie's mothers both placed emphasis on receiving education throughout the film. In the scene where they're in the car driving and Yolanda's parents are lecturing her about receiving an education so she doesn't end up poor in this country too, we understand all the pressures they put on her while she's just trying to live life as a kid. They emphasize her one day living a better life than they are and that her path to that life is through getting a degree, which is a classic immigrant story. Yeah. That many of us know is no longer true in 2021 with the state of our economy and the number of overeducated individuals we have applying for jobs they are too qualified for. <laughs> that's that's definitely something that's a, a hard shift for I think immigrant parents to make like their their children might recognize this in a way that they don't yet because there is still this idea of it being better than where they came from. Yeah. Cassandra continues saying through Mari we see her mother trying to push the same agenda while they live a vastly different way of life, struggling more visibly than Yolanda's family is. How are the girls meant to focus on education with all of the stress their families put them under? They shouldn't have to be their family's weight out of the struggle. Yeah. And, you know, in my Latinas course, we recently read Only Daughter by Sandra Cisneros. And we were talking about majoring in things that would make money instead of majoring in what Cisneros called something silly like English. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and I think a lot of that ties into what Yolanda in particular was facing. The idea of studying and doing well is important, but the goal is to be better off financially as well. And so it's more than just studying. It's studying the right things. 
right? It's not about pursuing your passions and your dreams. It's about being successful in perhaps a more monetary way. The next quote that we have from Moraga states, It was through my mother's desire to protect her children from poverty and illiteracy that we became anglicized. The more effectively we could pass in the white world, the better guaranteed our future. A student, Shanti Quesada, argue on the class blog that Yolanda's parents are very on top of her when it comes to her getting good grades in school. They firmly believe that an education is very important to their daughter. She said, I personally believe that they're doing this because they do not want their daughter to go through the struggles that they may have had and have experienced. They see that they struggle economically and may not have been able to give their daughter everything she needs and wants. They want her to grow and have for herself what they did not have. I think that Chanti raised an important point here that could be expanded on how to have an education is also a way of assimilating into Anglo-white culture especially if we consider the attack against multiculturalism and ethnic studies in the Southwest and other parts of the United States. Sure. Chanti was concerned about how this attitude towards a young adult can be very conflicting. She said, as teenagers, we go through many phases and experience many emotional changes. This strictness that her parents have with her can affect how she sees things in the long run. Yes, it is understandable that they're doing this for what they think is her own good, but it's also making the relationship that she has with her parents a bit uncomfortable. Although it is not the main concern of the film, it is clear in Mosquiti Mari how education as whitewashing creates tensions with the value a young person can assign to her, his or their heritage and ancestral culture. Yeah, that's an interesting thing too, right? What What is that line be between education being for the sake of learning something new and education being whitewashing? And I think we see this a lot of times in the African-American black communities as well, where there's almost like this idea that if you speak a certain way or you understand certain like educational context that you're you're like white on the inside, right? Which is obviously not true. We're not, <laughs> we're not saying that, but even within the community, there's still this sort of stigma. The, the other two girls that are friends with Yolanda at the beginning of the film and, and on and off throughout the film sort of embody this. Like they look at, at Yolanda's focus on education kind of like, well, why bother? Why do we need this? That's sort of taking away from who we are in whatever and and that doesn't have to be the case it's it's kind of a strange a strange line to ride i think one thing that uh, happens within the film is that the film is also very proud of of using music in spanish using by uh, mexican and chicano artists right so the culture is very vibrant within the film right but we see that yolanda the 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 goals that yolanda's parents have for her are precisely to kind of like erase that part, yeah? Erase mm -hmm. that heritage and kind of like get really dig deeper into her education. And in this case, what we're looking at is uh, an education in mathematics specifically. Right. All right. Well, next quote. Yeah, so I'm going to be in charge of the next quote, <laughs> yeah? <laughs> and Moraga says, I had no choice but, but to enter into the life of my mother. I had no choice. I took her life into my heart, but managed to keep a lid on it. 
as long as I feign being the happy, upwardly mobile heterosexual. Yeah, so I was thinking about this quote, and and I really think it mostly it most reflects Yolanda, who maybe hasn't ever really thought about her sexuality that much before this. You know, I, I mean, she kind of has grown up in a, a sheltered life, right? You know, she hasn't necessarily even thought about exploring her sexuality much. She's allowed her parents' wishes for her to become her whole identity. We don't know for certain... And, and and I mean, I don't think she wants this, but I think it's part of like that being the the good daughter and, and, and sort of trying to make her parents happy at the same time. But we don't know for certain, but I get the impression that she never actively thought about being interested in other girls until she met Mari. And when she's with Mari, that lid that that Moraga mentions comes off and she ends up figuring out more about herself beyond the expectations of her parents. Right. Moraga says that she that she had no choice. And I think the same is true of Yolanda, except maybe it's more that she didn't realize she had a choice more than anything else. Uh, so let's go back to Moraga. And the next quote is, my lesbianism is the avenue through which I have learned the most about silence and oppression. In this country, lesbianism is a poverty as in being brown, as in, as in being a woman, as in being just plain poor. Yeah, and, and Mari is all of these things, right? And, and visually so, right? I think even more so than Yolanda because of her mother's situation and her work life and the fact that Mari has to work as well to support the family and care for her sister. You know, we don't know for certain which of these she recognizes first in her own life, but we know that by the end of the film, she's actively experienced silence and oppression through each of these poverties. And at such a young age, it only makes things more difficult for the road ahead of her. It makes it easier for her to shut people out as well. If she does, then she doesn't need to feel the oppression as much because she won't have anything to compare it with. And I think that's a sad reality. Yeah. And we're going to finish, yeah, our... Uh, our quote uh, analysis. <laughs> our quote analysis with this uh, very important uh, section from the personal essay that talks about, right, the uh, how an oppressed person can also be an oppressor, right? Moraga says, We women have a similar nightmare for each of us in some way has been both oppressed and the oppressor. We are afraid to look at how we have failed each other. We are afraid to see how we have taken the values of our oppressor into our hearts and turned them against ourselves and one another. Yeah, I, I mean, internalized misogyny is a serious problem. And I think even more so in the Latinx communities, others as well, but we see it clearly in this film. I think that's why these movements of women supporting women and women uplifting women today in the, in the 21st century are crucial to our society. In the context of the film, Mari and Yolanda have one another. Their recognition of the other being oppressed in some way is what allows them to be there for each other. They protect one another. But at the same time, they've been raised in a society that, explicitly or implicitly, values the oppressor. They turn on one another at different points as well. And to some degree, this is a defense mechanism. And to another, it is a consequence of the oppressive society that has seemingly anyway, provided no other options for these young women. Uh, I also think about like how the, the relationship between Yolanda's uh, mother yeah, 
and and Yolanda, of course, like it's it's very complicated, really like heavy. And we see that yeah, Yolanda is reaching out to her. Yeah, she's reaching out as a woman. She wants to learn from her. She wants to learn from her experiences. She's interested in the in in those theories of the fresh. If we if we use uh, Moraga's phrasing, right? But the mother like shuts that down because right, like she suddenly becomes the oppressor. She suddenly becomes the the uh, the education police. Yeah, she's the one to say no. You need to go back to school. You need to do your homework. You need to succeed in school. There's no time mm -hmm. for us to talk about our experiences as Chicanas, right? I, that's interesting too. It, it makes me think, you know, moving outside of the the Latinx communities of Jamaica Kincaid's essay, Girl. I mm -hmm. don't know if you're familiar, but yes. that whole thing where where she's like, this is how to be a woman, basically, and. And in the case of Yolanda's mother, it's this is how to be successful, a successful woman in this society. And there isn't time for the other stuff. It's like there's only one path. There's only one way. And there, as the oppressor, these mothers are sort of basically perpetuating the idea that there aren't different paths that can be taken. All right. Let's add a few more recommendations here, right? We... We went into quite a bit of detail about Mosquita y Mari, and if you haven't checked the film out yet, you sh absolutely should. I don't think we gave enough away to to spoil it. It's still worth a, worth a watch. But we have a few other recommendations for you, so let's let's dig into that. Yeah, so I would like to recommend Decade of Fire. This is a documentary from 2018 that explores how throughout the 1970s, fires consumed the South Bronx. Black and Puerto Rican residents were blamed for the devastation, even as they battled daily to save their neighborhoods and their lives. Yeah, in this documentary, bronze-born Vivian Vasquez Irizarry with co-director Gretchen Hilderbrand pursues the truth surrounding the fires, uncovering policies of racism and neglect that still shape New York City and offering hope to communities on the brink today in the form of community activism. All right, so we're we're talking about Latina creators in this case, more so than the characters, or is it both? We're talking about both, right? Yeah. We're talking about yeah, the representation of Latinas in film, but also, right, uh, we're also like covering other uh, uh, film platforms such as a documentary. Got it. I'm going to do a plug for Real Women Have Curves from 2002. And this is the story of a first-generation Mexican-American girl and her passage to womanhood. Although she wants to go away to college, she must battle against the views of her parents who think she should stay at home and provide for the family. As a compromise, she works with her mother in a sewing factory over the summer and learns some important lessons about life, helping her make a decision about her future. The next film is that I want to uh, recommend is a fictional film in this case. It's I Like It Like That. And this is a 1994 dramedy written and directed by African-American director Darnell Martin about the trials of a half Jamaican, half Puerto Rican woman living in the poverty-stricken South Bronx. Through her, the film looks at how socioeconomic struggles and labels affect our sense of self, family, and community. It also looks at how the music industry monetizes aesthetics from Los Barrios Latinos, but is incapable of understanding or supporting them. And the last one I'll recommend, or I'm going to plug, I guess, is one that 
to full disclosure, I haven't seen yet, but it's on my list. It's called Language Lessons. It just came out, I think, last week in the theaters. This is September 2021. (laughs) So if you're listening to this later, you can find it probably in many different places. It was directed and co-written by Natalie Morales. And basically, when Adam, this is uh, played by Mark Duplass, uh, when his husband surprises him with weekly Spanish lessons, he's unsure about where or how this new element will fit into his already structured life. However, when tragedy strikes, his teacher, Cariño, who is actually played by Natalie Morales, becomes a lifeline he didn't know he needed. It's been labeled as a platonic love story, and I think we need more of those. So I like that idea of it being a different kind of love story. Yeah, and it matches the the topic of today of a, of a queer platonic love story of sorts. Yeah. Right, right. Thanks for joining us for this episode. We hope you learned something new about the film, its themes, and the visual choices that were made. Or maybe you took away something in our discussions of Moraga and Ansaldúa. We love it if you shared your takeaways with us. Had you already seen the film? Or, or are you inspired to watch it now if you haven't? Let us know what you think. It's currently, again, fall 2021, available on Netflix and Hulu, or for a small rental fee on Amazon or Apple TV. Follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at LatinXVisions. Send us a message or email us at LatinXVisions at gmail.com. We love to include your thoughts in our future episode. Subscribe to us on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or honestly, pretty much anywhere you get your podcasts. Share us with your friends and family. Subscribe and leave a five-star review that helps with search algorithms. Estamos a la escucha. Take care. Dale, until next time.